Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So I didn't have a choice. <laughs> Literally one day I showed up at church and I was the conversation around the pulpit. It came out of shame and guilt that I decided that I wanted to be around Black queer people. This community saved my life, but that decision to be out and leave home, I came out and came to the Black queer communities because I wanted to hide from all of the other part of the world that felt heavy and full of judgment and sad and mean and menacing. I just couldn't understand even at 16 or 17, being in my mind, this all-American kid, I was doing all these great things, but nothing was worse than being gay. So it was just this weird relationship with this idea of I'm a bad person because I just like what I like. I am Ian L. Haddock and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to Ian Haddock, founder and executive director of Normal Anomaly, a Houston-based nonprofit dedicated to assisting Black, queer-plus people with overcoming barriers and ending stigmas and problematic narratives. This past spring, Normal Anomaly actually had their first inaugural Black Queer Plus Advancement Festival, a weekend celebration and music festival spotlighting Black Queer Plus voices. Ian's also a contributor in Huffington Post. His advocacy work can be seen in Walgreens ads and Houston radio. Ian is many things. He's a community empath, a critical thinker, and sex analogist. I really enjoyed talking to Ian today because so much of his work is born from his own experience, knowing at a very young age that he himself was queer and never feeling accepted even by his own immediate family and his own community in the deep South for who he truly was. And he tells us some pretty traumatic and triggering stories about his own experiences with growing up in in that type of environment and what it took for him to break out of that. What did you think of our conversation, Roman? Yeah, you know, we actually don't talk to enough queer voices on this podcast, and we have our own biases, and we're both straight, cis people, right? And it's helpful for me to put my own majority brain into this, because, you know, Ian grew up, and then he had a very finite and specific idea around what queerness was. Like, honestly, a lot of us do based on what pop culture tells us. And even though he knew he was queer quite early, he didn't know that there was a spectrum right? And Mm -hmm. he's coming to understand that. But then also like all of his, call it family and friends support network or lack thereof, like had to change and morph as he grew up and became his own person. And it's just kind of a really powerful story because I think that that kind of code switching taught him not only how to operate personally in the world, but I think it impacted the kind of professional calling that he found. And with so many of our guests, when when they see something, they choose to do something about it based on kind of what their personal experiences was. So it's just really powerful. I don't want to say it was uncomfortable. I just said I was in unfamiliar territory, which I guess that's the goal of this pod, Sharon. Yeah. It was definitely one of the conversations where I felt like I was much more of a listener and learned a lot about about his experience. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with our new friend, Ian Haddock. Yay, it's great to have you here today, Ian, and it's great to talk to you again. Yes, super excited to be here. So, Ian, where are you from? So, I am from a small town called Texas City, Texas. It's about 30, maybe 45 minutes, depending on where you are in Houston, away 
going towards the island, actually. How big is that town? So Texas City, I say I'm from Texas City because there's a street that separates Texas City and Lamarck. Texas City is the larger, if you would, city. (laughs) It had 40,000 residents when I was being raised. But actually, my zip code was in Lamarck, which had 14,000 people. So it was not as rural as what people would think when they think about Texas. But it is a very rural country area (laughs) in Texas. Yeah. I grew up in New York City and the last apartment building I lived in had 900 apartments. Wow. So I feel like that that city block alone was probably the same population as Texas City, (laughs) Texas. That's pretty accurate. Texas City, Texas is... It feels like a small city, but it is definitely not. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. When I was in school and I didn't know my states and capitals, I probably would have thought Texas City was the capital. Definitely. Because that's what you do. Because, you know, Oklahoma. (laughs) No, no. I mean, so interestingly enough, so Texas City is a part of Galveston County. And Galveston was, you know, one of the first capitals of Texas. So I don't know. It might be interesting to see how Texas City got its name because it is in the mainland of Galveston Island. And with Galveston being one of the first capitals of Texas, I think that might be an interesting thing to look into. Yeah. (laughs) I got to ask, what was it like growing up as a kid in Texas City, Texas? Are there any stories that kind of stand out for you from that time in your life? It was a really fun time. So when I was young, before I realized all my intersections, all of my family members were in athletics. It is a city that breeds some of the most popular stars in the state of Texas in terms of high school football. Mm. So when I was in middle school during like 2003, before 2003, our high school had won a couple state championships while I was in middle school. So it was an expectation that on Friday nights, everybody in the little small town (laughs) would go to the high school football stadium. And that was kind of our sense of socialization when we grew up. It was really about having a good time at the football game. That was our downtown, if you would. And so that was this concentration on athletics and athleticism which kind of led me to figuring out that I was abnormal or not the norm, if you would, in my small town. Something else that is interesting is paired with athleticism, spirituality and religion is essential. Specifically, you got to be Christian (laughs) if you are in Texas City or Lamarck, Texas. Church, Friday night was the football game. Church was Sunday, all day, every Sunday. And so religion and athleticism was definitely paramount to Texas City, Texas. Yeah. Two central pillars. And you said that you realized you weren't of the norm. Is that because you didn't play football? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I actually did play football for a bit. Okay. I just realized how people didn't see me as valuable as a kid. Not to toot my own horn, but I was like the all-American kid. I was in theater. I was excellent in academics. I was a part of the choir. I was the mascot. I played football for some time. So I did everything. And not only did I do everything, but I did everything pretty... I was pretty good at everything. Yeah. Mm. But because I wasn't an athlete first, it made it really difficult. I see. And then how about from a church perspective? Was that part of your normal routine as well? Yeah, I actually love church. My mother never forced me to go to church. She didn't really go to church a whole lot, actually. But my grandparents, they were heavily involved in church. And I loved church. I often call myself a church queen (laughs) because I really love to go to church. Also, I One, we lived in a trap house, and we'll talk about that trap house, I'm sure, over the podcast. We lived in a trap house, and so there were a lot of drugs around me. And then also, we were extremely poor, extremely, extremely poor. And so the church, because we couldn't pay to go to attractions and do little things, 
I mean, even me being a mascot was really so that I could go to the football game because we couldn't afford the $6 ticket to get into the football games on Fridays. And so church was a great outlet. So I went to church every day except for Tuesday. I was in church in some facet every day after school, all Saturday, all Sunday, because really it was my only outlet. Yeah, that's amazing. Did you have any siblings growing up? Yeah. So my sorted family, I'm actually just meeting some of my father's children in the last two years. So I wasn't raised with many or any of them, but my mother has two, I have two older brothers and I pause, you probably hear the hesitation in me talking about him because I wasn't raised with the eldest. He was in and out of jail. And then the middle brother kind of took the manly role, yeah. whatever that means. And so he was pretty much out the house also. And so I was almost raised like I was the only child by a single parent. Also, my brothers are staggered. So my middle brother is seven years older than me. And then my oldest brother, honestly, I don't even know his age. I rarely even talk to him, but I think he may be like 14 or 15 years older than me. Wow. You mentioned that you're just meeting them now for the first time. How is that happening? Are you discovering each other on social media? Did you? Yeah, it's a really interesting process. So, and this is the first time I talked about it, but talking about being a modern minority, right? (laughs) Yeah. So when I was younger and I don't completely recollect this, but I believe from piecing things together in therapy. And personally, I remember when I was six or seven years old, my mother got a DNA test for my father. And I don't remember the results, but I don't think that my mother and my grandparents on my mother's side, my maternal grandparents were happy with the results. I don't know what they were, but I remember my presumed father coming by with the results and them sending me outside and it being a very contentious conversation. I remember that distinctly, but I don't know what those results were. My belief is that he did not test positive for being my father. Mm -hmm. Well, he was also, and I did not know this, I knew the lady's name, but recently I was running to be our pride grand marshal. It's kind of like a fun voting situation a couple years ago. Yeah. And I got a lot of press when I was, you know, running to be pride grand marshal. And my sister, or my assumed sister, <laughs> added me on Facebook and was just like, she was so proud and so on and so forth. And then her mother inboxed me. And she was like, you'll always be my child. I'm so proud your mother, because my mom has passed away. Your mother would be so proud. You know, you are my child. I always wanted to be in your life. And this is in 2020. So this is during COVID. So we've been chatting pretty much since then. And she has a couple kids. And my assumed father (laughs) has a couple other kids our age and from a different woman. And so they've all been connecting me because once again, Houston and Texas City, Texas City is like a suburb of the suburbs of Houston. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm on news or if I'm in the paper, that's the news that they get in Texas City. And so it gives them kind of a reference point to check in. Right. I've heard so many stories about how social media has brought families together, how 23 and Me. Those Mm -hmm. types of tests have linked people to each other, especially for people that have just never even known that they had siblings, whether it's adoptees or just different situations. And I'm always so curious when you've lived your whole life thinking you may have only had one sibling or two siblings or even been an only child and then find out in your adult years that there's 20 people running around, right? Suddenly it's like instant family. Yeah, it felt good because I often say, So I left home somewhere around 16 or 17 when I just decided that I did not want to be in the closet anymore. (laughs) I don't know if I decided. I think circumstances decided that I didn't want to be in the closet anymore. And my family was just not 
open to that. And so, yeah. Could we stop there for a second? Cause I'm so curious. You grew up in a very tiny, tiny town where literally it was football on Friday nights and everybody, everybody was there. How old were you when you knew? Oh, I don't think there was a time that I didn't know. I Mm, think what complicates it for me is I didn't understand that there was a spectrum of queerness and I didn't have language to breathe life into what my experience was. Yeah. I often think back to my first girl crush. I was crushing on men. When little kids have their first girl crush when they are young, I had crushes on boys in kindergarten and first grade. But I remember my first girl crush and she was at church. And I remember just having a external response to seeing her in her heels the yeah. first time she wore <laughs> heels. And I was just like, this doesn't make sense. There's a very specific idea around queerness, especially gayness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a person of color, specifically a yeah. black person. What is that? What do black people perceive that? What is that perception in your opinion? Well, the perception from my lens is that if you are a male and you like men, you are gay. That's it. That's as far as it can go. There is no bisexuality, this queerness, this pansexuality, whatever that looks like. If you like men, you are gay. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I often talk about the first language I had. I was feminine to the environment I was in. Right. I wasn't quote unquote flamboyant. Not that anything is wrong with that. But I was feminine because the environment I was in was a very strong mean, menacing environment. And so my family called me sissy and faggot before I knew I was a boy. Mm. And so that was a very finite and specific idea around what queerness looked like. And so I knew I was queer very early, but what I didn't know is that there was this spectrum and that I could like women and I could like trans folk and I could like humans. I could just be attracted to humans. Right. (laughs) Right. So you said when you left the house at 16, that I guess if you weren't fully out, were there people in your life that knew? And what was that kind of reaction? And then talk about that decision and that moment to leave and your justification for it to these people, why you're going to peace out. I had a little bit of an issue at school um, out of respecting the people that were involved. I like to just kind of go over it, but I had a very traumatic experience with a social worker at school, an investigation that happened at school that outed me to my local community. And so I didn't have a choice because of that experience. And so, I mean, literally one day I showed up at church and I was the conversation around the pulpit, right? Right, right. And so I often talk to people As a leader in the LGBT world now, I often talk to people about coming out and how people say it's so empowering and it's about you and it's about freedom. And that is so true. But from my lens and my perspective, it was a very traumatic experience. And it didn't come out of feeling powerful and feeling empowered. It came out of shame and guilt that I decided that I wanted to be around Black queer people or queer people in general. I think this community saved my life when I decided to leave. But that decision to kind of be out and leave home didn't come out of, oh, I just want to go have fun or these are great people. It came out of, I wanted to hide. (laughs) I came out to hide, interesting enough. (laughs) Came out and came to the Black queer community specifically because I wanted to hide from all of the other part of the world that felt heavy and full of judgment and sad and mean and menacing. And these were not new concepts because of what kind of environment I was raised in, but I just couldn't understand even at 16 or 17, being in my mind this all-American kid, none of my siblings on my mother's side, none of them graduated high school. I was still doing well in high school, ended up graduating in the top five of my class that's not percent, top five yeah. people. Yeah. I was UIL one act player. I was the star for that. I got medals for that. I got played football. I was doing all these great things, but because I was gay, it was just 
nothing was worse than being gay. My brother was just juxtaposing us, not to say that he was bad, because I think we all should have deserved the same level of grace. But during the same time that this came out, my brother was in the hospital with nine bullets in his body from a bad drug deal. And while my mom was stepping away from me, she was at his side every single day up here in Houston until he got better. So it was just like this weird relationship that I had with this idea of I'm a bad person because I just like what I like. Sure. Sure. And especially after church was that place you went to literally almost every day and to walk in and to just feel they at that moment had completely abandoned you, right? Because of your choices. And when you say you came out to the Black queer community and you left, I guess in that moment, how did you know where to go? What did you do? And I often tell people that what's so interesting about the conflation of sex and sexuality is that often Black, queer, specifically, let's just say queer people, often queer people don't decide their sexuality based on their sex, but oftentimes their social sexual networks are the only places that they can confide in. And so it begins to form this idea around, because I'm able to have sex with you, right? I am able to communicate with you. And that shows up in a lot of interesting ways in adulthood, but specifically around how do I know where to go? It was my social sexual networks that kind of begin to tell me at 16 or 17, my friends who were queer in high school, the people that I was meeting on, because I had to go outward, right? So the people that I was meeting on Yahoo Messenger, right? And chat rooms and things like that. So definitely a risky situation, but those were the people that I found community in. Those were the people that I could talk through. Okay, I'm having all of these thoughts. I'm having all these feelings. They are conflicting with what I was taught. They're conflicting with what my family stands for. And I don't know. And (laughs) it's so cool to think about this because I remember coming to Houston with one of my older friends and being snuck into the gay club when I was Because you were too young? Yeah. Yeah, I was 17. And it felt like a utopian society that I had been missing out Hmm. all my life. I mean, I walked through, I saw people J-setting. Upstairs, I would see people voguing. They were twerking. Everybody was wearing what they wanted to. It was my first encounter with trans folk. And I didn't have word for, we used to call it androgyny, but like non-binary, gender non-conforming folks. And I was looking around like, wow, such a spectrum. We didn't have language. I didn't have language. But I remember saying, everybody was talking about in Texas City and Lamar, going to Orlando and going to New York and I want to go to the Big Apple. I'm like, no, this is it here. here." (laughs) Yeah. And I'm sure, I mean, I can just imagine it was probably just, it was a place where everybody could just be and to show up however they wanted to show up. (sighs) And it was before social media. So the range of people that you saw that really needed that space And I often connected to church. It was my new church. And I could see I was really blessed that when I came to that space, I got connected to some really powerful, really forward-thinking, progressive people who really believed in me. Because I could see how you could lose yourself in a very negative way. And I've seen friends and colleagues and associates do this because the sanctity and safety that church gave me from the environment that I was in, after they pushed me out, I found it at the gay club. (laughs) And it was that same freedom and that same sense of community that literally, I believe, changed my life. Yeah. And that feeling of acceptance, it sounds like. Yes. It's so much of who you became is kind of rooted in community, right? You found a community. And I guess how we discovered each other is 
since then, you've started founding community, right? Things like Normal Anomaly and some of the events and the things that you're doing. So I guess before we get into that, what was that transition for you to go from, okay, I'm going to be a part of a community. I'm going to take from the benefits of this community and I need to kind of level this up. I need to build something. What was that decision point? What was that inflection point to say, I'm going to found, I'm going to build? Yeah. So when I say this community saved me, hopefully you all feel it through the microphone and listening, but I literally have chills because I felt like an orphan. Jared Carmichael, who just came out in his special, says said this on a late night show. I felt like an orphan. And so to come into this space, and it wasn't all beautiful, <laughs> but it felt beautiful to me. And I went from literally not having a place to stay to somebody that became my mentor and my chosen father, staying with him for months, years, actually. I mean, had no connection to me other than I was community and I was young and he saw something in me. And after I left him, because he ended up going to school and having to move some things around so he couldn't afford me because he wasn't charging me anything, he ended up saying, you got to stand on your own two feet for a bit while I get my master's degree. And I reverted back to comfort and I started doing some sex work. And while participating in sex work and all of the (laughs) intricacies that happen in a situation like that, I was reaching out to him because my chosen father is openly living with HIV. I also just had this idea that I would end up being a person living with HIV just because I didn't have value and I was an orphan and I didn't see the potential that people around me were seeing. And so I would really go get an HIV test and an STI test, not from a lens of I want to know my status and I want to protect people, but when is it going to happen? Yeah, it felt inevitable. Yeah, so I would go off and... But but I want to I ask a question there, Ian, that inevitability wasn't coming from oh, the nature of my work, it sounds like it was from a sense of value or lack of that you had. Why did you think that was inevitable for you? Yeah. I mean, because I was an abomination (laughs) in my mind, right? I was an abomination. And so this was going to be the punishment that God gave me. It was actually going to validate. Well, because that was a narrative that was coming out of the conservative right, I guess. And actually, what was crazy is that was going to validate my family and bring us closer because I was going to die, right? I was going to die from being gay, right? And that's what happened. That's not actually what happened. No, that's not what happened. That's what I thought would happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, exactly. And so I would go get tested often and just always nervous to get the result, always getting negative results. And I would take friends with me that was doing sex work or doing other things. And many times my friends would come back positive with a positive Mm -hmm. or reactive result. And I would still come back negative. I'm like, why? I don't, (laughs) I'm just waiting on it. Why are you holding me off? I'm literally having to console my friends who are getting this news. And I'm just, coming back negative. And I'm more sexual. I do sex for work at this time. So like, what is happening? And at some point, I don't know, something clicked and said, if you're having to be the person for your friends, why don't you try to do this for a living? And I don't know if it came in my mind first or some weird coincidence happened, but it seemed like overnight I was working in an outreach position. at a community-based organization. And through that, I went through all of those systems and I worked in frontline, mid-level, senior-level management at a lot of different organizations. I thought I was making impact. I thought I was doing the work of the people. I was doing HIV testing and doing events for community. And then we were getting ready for Black Pride You'll often hear me talk about Black Gay Pride or moments around Black Gay Pride because it's a really important piece of my story. Prom night, when I was graduating from my high school, 
which I don't know how I did that, not having a, a real home. But prom night was the same night as Houston's Black Gay Pride. And then this situation, the catalyst to found some moments was around Black Gay Pride. But this Black Gay Pride, I was testing for tickets. We were testing people for VIP tickets to all of the events. And we did this every year. And it was a push on the outside to get people who could not afford to get into the venues to get them in free. But on the other end, what I knew from the organizational standpoint was this was going to raise our positivity level, right? So with our grant, we had a certain number of people that needed to test positive to say that we were doing what we needed to do. What? I didn't even realize (laughs) that is such a... Whoa, that, yeah, yeah, that's, that just blew my mind with that being a specification for you to get the grant. Yeah. Wow, that is very morbid. Okay. Yeah. So we were generally the people, this demographic that would come in and could not afford it because HIV is a racial, social, and economic justice issue. We didn't have language then. I have the language now. But the people that would come in to get tested are generally at the intersection of poverty. They generally have some type of poly drug use and poverty has all these other intersections, unemployment and homelessness, so on and so forth. So we would get a lot of people who would test positive. And number 26, we have four people to test and we were getting ready to close. And our boss had said, if y'all don't get all of these tickets gone, then you're going to have to work during Black Gay Pride. We had did that the year before. We said, oh, no, we're not going to do that this year. So we said we're going to stay open late to test these four people. Number 26 came back reactive. And number 26 was a really cool guy. He reminded me so much of me. He was new to the scene. He had just, he wasn't really out, but he was around gay people. And he was really trying to find his footing. And I remember trying to give him his result. And he said, oh, I don't want any paperwork. Just give me the pass. I'll come talk to you later because my friends are out there. I said, "Okay, cool. Well, I tried to help him out, tried to get him into care, which is what they want you to do, get him into care. But he had other issues. He had a lot of other issues, poverty and homelessness and all of these social determinants that lead to HIV transmission. And anyway, a couple weeks later, he overdosed. And it was a really defining moment for me because I realized that he didn't die from HIV and he didn't die from his overdose. He died from shame and he died from stigma and he died from not seeing his value. And he died from, in terms of tangible things, he died from poverty and homelessness, and all of those unemployment, not having a connection to family. And I realized how the prophecy did fulfill itself, just not through me, because that was me. Yeah. We're both of you are about the same age, too. Yeah. Yeah. I walked away from the work at that point and said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to eat. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills, but I'm going to figure out something. Because this is not the answer. That was the moment I decided to find the words because Normal Anomaly, it actually started as a blog that I wrote to myself. I didn't feel normal, but I didn't feel like an anomaly, but everybody else felt like I was both of those. Right. (laughs) And I wrote kind of to myself things that I was thinking and it really caught on and I started learning more about storytelling and how to captivate audiences. But then I said, well, Ian, you're doing okay with this. You're making a little money. You've been able to take care of your bills, but you're still not doing what you left the job to do. You're telling people stories, but you're not changing their narratives. And so that brings up where we are today. (laughs) And so tell us more about what normal anomaly that's... (laughs) tongue twister, what it has become today. Yeah. So, you know, we have moved in such a wonderful direction to impact 
the narratives of Black queer people. So we do that through three distinct ways in terms of how we move us forward, all centered around the forward mobility of Black queer people. And that is, we believe you have to give people services that they need directly to them. So we have things like a community burial fund. We do transportation assistance. We do employment assistance. And we're going to be expanding, hopefully soon, to provide some other direct services that people can be a part of. But then we also realize that you have to work on the structure and build infrastructure. So advocacy programs and things like that build infrastructure for our community through leadership development and business development. But we also talk to our mayor and other political influencers about policy change. Mm -hmm. But then also we realize that not only is it about the structure, the infrastructure and the services, we also have to figure out why these things won't change. And so we do that through capacity building with organizations like DEI work, sex positive framework, and also research. So we're a part of the HIV Prevention Trials Network. And so we do all of these things because we believe that there has to be this multi-pronged approach. And our approach is always about the movable middle. So what can we impact now? We appreciate all of the organizations that focus on the critics and that focus on people that know the information but deny it. And we know a lot of organizations focus on allyship and we have a great focus on allyship. But our lens is to focus on the movable middle. People who just don't know, they haven't been impacted, they haven't been engaged and with the right information, they have the possibility of becoming an ally. And that has been very successful in our work, even in creating new novel ways, like our music festival coming up, really novel ways in the South to play with the idea of building community and inviting, as (laughs) Twitter often says, inviting people to the cookout, right? Such that they can experience what I remember as this utopian society, right, when I first experienced queerness. I think so much of that is important, too, because it's even in your name, right? The normal anomaly. It's We have to normalize this for so many people because I think with that, and something we do on the show, it's like with that comes greater understanding and empathy because if you don't have base knowledge, then... I hate to say the loudest people tend to kind of dominate the conversation, what it is or what the perception is and what's wrong with this versus, no, this is this is kind of it is for what it is. And on top of that, it's the boring stuff, the logistics stuff. Some of the things you were mentioning, the kind of core services, those are equally as important as advocacy. Yeah. And to help the people and meet the people where they're at. Yeah. Well, because the truth of the matter is, and I really believe this, true liberation for all will come from the bottom up. Definitely not the top down, because if you create the blueprint for the most marginalized, it's easy to create other blueprints for not that this is the oppression Olympics. But I mean, when you look at every intersection of disparity, right, there is no more marginalization and disparity than at the intersection of blackness and queerness. Arguably, we could talk about the Latinx community, the immigrant community, but even that, the the lowest of them all are Black immigrants, especially Black queer Latinx immigrants, right? And so it's just, we really endeavor to try to just move the needle. And we're also realistic, right? We're also realistic, but we really have hope. That's what I appreciate about this work and about the people that work with us, whether, you know, from a consultant lens or our actual core full-time team, we're a team of people who really have hope. (laughs) I'm laughing because I don't know where it comes from other than this intrinsic culture of what we do. But we really believe, I mean, we really have the audacity to believe in a better future for everybody. Mm -hmm. How dare we? But we really believe it. (laughs) 
So what's next? I mean, you guys have a lot of interesting things going on. I guess if there's one thing people could do or people could know about your work, or even people could take away, right? Because it's not just about, it is great work that you're doing kind of in Texas. And I think so often than not, you see these kind of just really dumb, dumb, (laughs) divisive laws being passed against communities. Yeah. And it's easy for a lot of us. I live in a part of the country. Sharon lives in a part of the country where it's easy to kind of ignore it because everything's better here, but not. It's a slippery slope. So I guess, how should other people outside of Texas, outside of the things that are going on in the South, be thinking about the space that you're in and kind of the negative things that are happening in our society? Yeah, I think we have to really take off our rose-colored glasses (laughs) often because although we have hope in Austin, our state capital, one of our politicians is writing to the school board about a Pride Week because he's saying it's against the law. (laughs) Our governor, with all that's going on, had time to write a letter urging people to stop giving affirming care to trans youth. There's so many things. So (laughs) I get mixed up sometimes. And the reality is what that does is it forces two distinct things to happen, right? It forces people who have adequate resources to move to more liberal and progressive places where you all are, right? But for those at the margins, it is that value proposition that we talked about, that internal thermometer that says that I'm good enough, I'm worthy enough. Thinking about trans youth, I have a personal story with that. My aunt took in her grandkids as her children. And one of the grandkids is what our family would consider soft. They're using better language now that I'm around and we've kind of forged a relationship, especially me and my aunt. Well, a couple years ago, he asked for a dress for Christmas, like a ball gown. He wanted to wear the dress at home. They came to me asking, what do we ask him? Do we ask him his pronouns? Or I'm just like, well, he's really young. He may or may not know that. But if you create the space, he'll come and then we may call them or she or whatever. But he'll come around right now. He just wants to wear a dress. Yeah, the question I ask is what color? Right, exactly. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so I said, I think you should just talk to him around if, where can he wear it? Because you also want to protect him to some extent and kind of ease into this conversation. So anyway, with all that's going on, the grandchild is in therapy because they have an in that's went through something similar, right? And so... <laughs> He's in therapy and not from a you're a bad type of situation, but just trying to work through the thoughts. It's a lot of trauma there, right? And it's getting weird because he is getting closer to really deciding what gender looks like for them. And now we have this situation here in Texas. So it really does have far-reaching damage because all of the things that my aunt who would not have known about any of this or how to handle or manage any of this if she didn't have a connection to not only me, but other family members who are out and queer. Mm -hmm. She's doing all she can to protect her child and to protect him both from the world and from his own thoughts. But this just further complicates it. And so I think going back to my original statement of really just taking off the rose-colored glasses, and that doesn't mean seeing that it's terrible out there, but seeing that this has far-reaching impacts. And what happens is one thing to leave your home community because your family doesn't accept you and go to find a community that gives you a chance. It's another thing when your family accepts you, but the government says who you are is illegal. It's a different impact. And all of the things that I have spoken about that I've had to deal with through my own personal trauma will be exacerbated when a government 
says that my body is illegal or that their body is illegal. I'm taking a breath. (sighs) If we were to turn back the clock and bring you all the way back to the days in Texas City, Texas, when you were going to church six days a week and thinking about girls, but not sure if you should be thinking about girls. (laughs) What? (laughs) What advice would you give to yourself? Cliché as it may sound, it gets better. It does. It really gets better. You won't ever figure it all out. You will always have to rise to the occasion. It will be a treacherous journey that seems to never end. But in this weird, uncanny way, it will all be worth it because you will get better. You will make people better. And at some point, you'll realize that it's never been about the destination and always about the journey. That's really great advice. Ian, are you ready for speed round? Yes. (laughs) I know. I feel like we got really deep there. (laughs) Took it deep and slow. (laughs) Took it real deep and slow. And now we're going to bring it up a little bit. We're going to do some speed rounds. So let's get started. What is one thing about you that no one expects? That I love interior design, but I'm not that good at it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the part. Right. There are some stereotypes in the front part of the question, but I like the honesty and the vulnerability (laughs) to the second half of your answer, my friend. Why do you say that? Well, yeah, I'm like, I'm like, what, what's your like, faux pas? Yeah. What's the worst thing you've done with your home? <laughs> I love it. I'm just a very gaudy individual. So I want, <laughs> I want gaudy. Oh. My house looks like a mixture of if Versace and Dior had a baby. <laughs> just very gaudy. <laughs> what's a film, a book, a TV show that has characters that you relate to? Oh, this is good. TV show that has characters that I relate to. (laughs) I'm going to just surprise y'all and say Tom and Jerry. (laughs) Say more. (laughs) Are you Tom or are you Jerry? Which one? I think I'm Jerry. (laughs) I think going back to this idea that although they're a cartoon, they create these moments where they're always chasing after something that they never get. But for some reason... It still ends on a good note. I don't know how it does that, but that's why I relate to it. It's like y'all are both chasing things that y'all never get. But for some reason, the episode always ends in a good place. Yeah. (laughs) And they're always driving each other crazy while doing it too. Exactly. (laughs) What is your favorite mom dish? Oh my gosh. Salmon croquettes. Oh my gosh. I'm going to make somebody make me some. I don't cook either. (laughs) 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 But (laughs) so salmon croquette. Oh my gosh. My mom, if she would have cooked me that every single day, I probably would eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I love it. That's amazing. That sounds yummy. What about the opposite side of that? What's your least favorite food? Oh my gosh. My least favorite food. Anything with dairy. So I don't know if I was lactose intolerant or my mama had this thing that if she didn't eat it, then you didn't eat it. And so she didn't eat cheese or any like dairy products. And so we never ate cheese or dairy products. So now I have a huge aversion to anything that smells like dairy. If it's very cheesy, if it has a lot of butter, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't do it. Do you like pizza? I eat it with no cheese. It tastes like spaghetti. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeseless pizza. You know, I thought I liked it, Ian, but man, I think the, I I I think the cheese thing's a deal breaker. Yeah. <laughs> More cheese for me, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who is someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast? Oh my gosh. I think there's this lady that I've been connected with. Her name is Jotina Buck. She's local here in Houston. And what's so cool about her is she blends <laughs> Bougetto very well. And what I mean by that is she's like this spiritual practitioner, but every now and then, like, she'll twerk. And I'm just like, <laughs> I want to know more about this twerking. Who is that person? <laughs> Will she start twerking in the middle of a speech that she's making? I mean, just depending on, she might be doing yoga and then all of a sudden she'd be like, oh, y'all did cool. Oh. And she'll start <laughs> 
So Ian, last question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? Being a modern minority means to me embracing all my intersections while expanding and being open to the intersections of everyone else to realize that we're a lot more than different. Amen, brother. Amen. Ian, thank you so, so much for not just spending time with us today, but also sharing your stories and your very rich past and all of the great work that you're doing today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I am so honored and thank you for your work. This is really important work and I'm blessed to be connected to you all. Thank you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.